Congress avoided a government shutdown late Saturday night, relieving a mound of anxiety among federal employees and contractors, at least for the next few weeks. In this week's Federal Report, Federal News Network Executive Editor Jason Miller writes about how federal managers can deal with the ongoing emotional and physical toll preparing for a shutdown can have on employees and contractors. And Jason joins us now to talk more about it. Hey, Jason. Hey, Jared. And this last week especially, I think, has been really exhausting for federal employees, really for everybody, but especially the people who've been directly involved in building those shutdown plans Talk a bit with us about what you heard from people you talked with about what that process looks like and sort of what it does to people. As our listeners know well, this build up to the shutdown, the last 10 or so days has just been overwhelming, has been all encompassing. And the folks I've talked to, the executives I've I've talked to said at least 20 hours of their week last week was spent on preparing for the shutdown, looking at the data, looking at, okay, who's accepted, accepted, who's not accepted, Who's going to be furloughed? All those decisions that went into it. And that just eats into so much of what they do day in and day out. Now, again, this is not new. A lot of executives tell me we've been through this before. We know the drill, but it doesn't make any one easier than another. And especially when you haven't had to really go through it to this extent, to this, you know, zero hour, as we saw last weekend, that they that they maybe aren't used to it. And then you have a whole host of new political appointees who probably have never been through a shutdown or maybe haven't been at least in 10 years. And I think that that becomes much more of a harder decision. And I think the other piece to this, as I talked to, to one executive, is there is a piece that's all you talk about. That's all that's in front of you. Are we going to shut down? Are we not going to shut down? Are we going to move forward? Are we not going to move forward? What's going to happen? You know, I talked to one person who, you know, kind of jokingly was a little disappointed there wasn't a shutdown. You know, in, in the end, they were happy to go back to work on Monday for sure. But a lot of feds who can afford it and, and can be satisfied with it, you know, say, well, if Congress is going to play this game and treat us poorly, may, maybe it's good that I get to take a week or two off. But I think all of that is an emotional toll that it takes. And I think that's one area we just don't spend enough time on. Yeah, and, and I think the fact that we went through an immense planning effort for this one and it didn't ultimately happen, that, I mean, that's a good thing, first of all. I want, I want to be on the record as saying that, but it sort of highlights what a massive waste of public resources this entire process is. We, we spent, an, I say we, but the government as a whole spent an enormous amount of time getting ready for this. Ultimately, none of those plans had to get enacted, at least this time around. Do we have any idea what that planning process in and of itself costs in times of in terms of time, in terms of money? There's never been an independent or even an estimate from a government accountability office to say this is what the planning, the contingency efforts cost. However, when you go back to the 2018-2019 shutdown, the 35-day shutdown that affected the government, the Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee looked at several factors in that in their 2019 report, and they actually analyzed the data based on agency feedback across three shutdowns. 2013, there was the about 15-day shutdown. And uh, I didn't remember this, Jared, but there were actually two in 2018. Mm-hmm. There was a three-day shutdown in early 2018, and then that 35-day shutdown that spanned 2018 into 2019. And what the committee staff did was look at 26 agencies, asked them a bunch of questions, and they came up with a number that said about $338 million in what they call other costs associated with shutdowns, including administrative work, lost revenue, late fees on interest payments. Now, let's be clear here. This is not just the contingency. This is the closing down and the reopening and then everything that happens kind of in the middle. 
So this $338 million is by far not just one side of the coin. It's it's the entire coin. Interestingly enough, they you know when you dig into the details, uh, they looked at large agencies, they looked at small agencies, and I just randomly picked two of them. Consumer Product Safety Commission, they said they're their estimated 35-day shutdown cost from 2018 to 2019 for administrative uh, efforts was about just under a million dollars. You look at NASA, which I looked at their most current contingency plan, and they had planned to furlough about 17,000 employees if a shutdown had happened. But when they looked at that 2018 to 2019 administrative cost, they said that that closure added up over to $27 million in administrative costs. And I'll be clear again, Jared, this is for closing down and reopening, not just one side or the other. So the CR that Congress passed over this weekend, it, it certainly buys some time, but I, I don't think anybody really sees a clear, obvious path ahead for getting all the appropriations bills done in that time frame. So that means in the next few weeks, there's at least a strong possibility that we're back in this mode again of planning for a shutdown. With that in mind, what should federal managers be thinking about right now as, as the government heads back toward at least the possibility of a shutdown again or getting ready for another CR? What 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 should they have top of mind when they're thinking about taking care of people? I think the, the biggest thing when we talk about that November 17th deadline that Congress set for itself is as we get closer, we will know more about, okay, will they get uh, some appropriations passed, right? We saw last week, the Defense Department, Veterans Affairs, maybe Agriculture, all of those bills had come through the House. Some got through, some didn't. Uh, will they? Will this be a partial shutdown like in 2018, 2019? Or will this be another full shutdown like we almost saw this past weekend? But in the meantime, managers have to say, okay, how do I make sure my employees are ready? First of all, Jared, no surprise here. It starts with communication. You have to communicate with your employees, have to make sure they understand what this means, right? Uh, what does it mean around things like if you're going to be furloughed or not furloughed. It has nothing to do with whether you're a really important worker or not. It has really to do with archaic uh, budget rules. That's that's one of the key things I heard from Emily Murphy, a former GSA administrator, and she governed GSA during the 2018-2019 shutdown. Another thing I heard, for instance, from Jim Williams, a former, again, another GSA administrator, longtime federal executive at DHS at IRS, who's been through shutdowns, he goes, it's it's about leadership and the encouragement, support, even advice for how to kind of get ready for a shutdown. Uh, you have to recognize that a shutdown is bad, but you have to come to work ready each day. And then if when a shutdown does happen, come back, be ready to work when you come back. So I think that's another really big issue that managers have to keep in mind is that they cannot over communicate and, and over prepare. And, and then the third piece I'll just offer is it actually came from Greg Giddens, a former acquisition executive at the Department of Veterans Affairs. And he talks about the losing confidence in the quote unquote system. And Jared, we're talking about the system that government, the system that works. And I think, you know, a lot of federal employees come to their job with a sense of passion, a sense of really connected to their mission. And when they see this shutdown, the brink, the manship, as President Biden called it uh, yesterday, that really is demoralizing in a way, in a huge way, and really becomes a morale issue. You got to really be worry about the morale of your workforce. And I think federal managers need to take care of their workforce and address that morale factor and address that issue of burnout and, and exhaustion from the emotional work and the physical work it takes to think about these plans and look at data and really put together the, the, the contingency. So I think there's a lot managers can do between now and the next 45 days. Uh, and, and again, we don't know what will happen, but there's no sense right now that it's going to be taken care of in the next 45 days that we won't be talking to shut down again in, in early November.
that communication piece you mentioned seems so huge to me. And I, I feel like there's been an evolution in that among all the shutdowns that we've seen in recent years. In earlier times, there was just an instinctive impulse to just never talk about planning for a shutdown or what would happen with the workforce or the media, um, you know, some sense that if we don't talk about it, it won't happen. But that's not how life works, obviously. And, and it seems to me like more agencies have come around to that view that the better prepared you are, the more you talk to your workforce about what this looks like and what their role is going to be if this comes to pass. That that That's really increased in recent years, I think. Is that your sense, too? Absolutely. And I think they've also done a better job of talking to the, the regular public, Joe Citizen, a Jane Citizen, about what the shutdown means to them. And you know, you saw this on social media, you saw this on LinkedIn and, and Twitter or X, you saw this on, on Reddit and, and a lot of these social media platforms where the agencies were being very out there, aggressive and saying, hey, if the shutdown happens, this is what will happen. You saw this with the unions too, AFGE, NTU, NFFE, NEFI, all of them were, were very saying, hey, this house, this affects federal employees directly. This is how this affects uh, contractors, uh, you know, this is that impact. And I think that's actually a good thing because I think what tends to happen is, and we feel this every day, Jared, agencies are not good at PR. They just don't do a good PR. They don't want to talk about all the great things they do and the impact they have every single day on the on the nation. And I think when you lose and, and you don't have that ability to talk about all these great things you do, people don't understand, oh, well, it's okay if the FDA doesn't show up. Uh, my food will still be safe. Well, will it? Nobody knows. Or, well, it's okay if the National Park closes. It's good for the environment. Well, is it? I mean, the National Park Service and, and the Department of Interior and, and, and the Agriculture Department, they do so much more than just open and close a gate. Yeah, and I think you can do that communication without fear-mongering. And I think agencies have increasingly gotten better and better at that. So that's been interesting to see. Federal News Network's Jason Miller, thanks very much for joining us. And we would urge people to read the federal report that Jason just published at federalnewsnetwork.com. Thanks, Jason. Thank you. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people? And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. 
In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down, so I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent, new thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when as a leader that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to 
recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm gonna go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I wanna hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency. So we're really still creating who we're gonna become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, 
that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day.
Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.